right, so we are continuing our gospel culture series. It's going to be a five-part series here, and this is part two. So if you missed the first one, you can always um, catch that online, and um, you'll be up to speed with this series. So um, Francis Schaeffer, how many of you are familiar with the name Francis Schaeffer? Okay, see quite a number of hands. He was an American theologian and philosopher and pastor. Um, he and his wife, Edith, founded um, Labrie Community in Switzerland back in 1955. Uh, it, it began when they started to open their home there in Switzerland to travelers interested in discussing philosophy and religious belief. And he wrote a bunch of stuff, but he wrote one little booklet called Two Contents, Two Realities. And I'll just give you those two contents and two realities in a second in case you're wondering so that you can focus on the quote here in a minute. But um, the two contents, he's just talking about what the church needs, sound doctrine and honest answers to honest questions. Okay, those were the two contents. And then two realities that need to characterize the church, true spirituality and the beauty of human relationships. Okay, so we need... The truth, sound doctrine, we need to be able to answer honestly, honest questions, because people have honest questions, um, and then two realities, true spirituality and the beauty of human relationships. So here's what he wrote. The end, and what he means by that, that is the, the purpose, the goal of Christianity is not the repetition of mere propositions, not just getting the answers right. Without the proper propositions, you cannot have that which should follow. Okay, so truth is vitally important. But after having the correct proposition, the end of the matter is to love God with all our hearts and souls and minds. The end of the matter after we know about God in the revelation he's given in verbalized propositional terms in the scripture is to be in relationship with him. A dead, ugly orthodoxy with no real spiritual reality must be rejected as sub-Christian, there must be spiritual reality. Will it be perfect? No. But it can be real, and it must be shown. There must be some reality. There must be something real of the work of Christ in moment-by-moment -moment life, something real of the forgiveness of specific sin brought under the blood of Christ, something real in Christ bearing his fruit through me, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. These things must be there. There is nothing uglier in all the world, nothing that more turns people aside than a dead orthodoxy. Okay, so that's the first reality. The second reality is the beauty of human relationships. True Christianity produces beauty as well as truth, especially in the specific areas of human relationships. We are to show something to the watching world on the basis of the human relationships we have with other people, not just other Christians. We must not say man is made in the image of God unless we look to God and by God's grace treat every man with dignity. So the truth in proposition made in God's image, but if we live in such a way as to undermine that, then nobody's going to care what we say over here. So both are so vitally important. Now, if we are called upon to love our neighbor as ourselves when he is not a Christian, how much more should there be beauty in the relationships between true Bible-believing Christians? Something so beautiful that the world would be brought up short. If we do not show beauty in the way we treat each other, 
then in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of our own children, we are destroying the truth we proclaim. And then he gives this little illustration. Every big company, if it is going to build a huge plant, first makes a pilot plant. I don't know if this happens in every case, but go with it for the sake of the illustration. Uh, First makes a pilot plant in order to show that their plan will work. Every church, every mission, every Christian school, every Christian group, regardless of what sphere it's in, should be a pilot plant that the world can look at and see see there a beauty of human relationships that stands in exact contrast to the awful ugliness of how they treat each other again so often in our world. There should be something so different that they will listen, something so different it will commend the gospel to them. We who are true Bible-believing Christians must ask God to forgive us for the ugliness with which we have often treated each other when we are in different camps. I'm talking now about beauty, and I've chosen this word, this word, sorry, typo, with care. I could call it love, but we have so demoted the word that it's often meaningless. So I use the word beauty. There should be beauty, observable beauty, for the world to see in the way all true Christians treat each other. So that's kind of the heartbeat of this series, right? Gospel culture. The relationships and the community dynamics in the church should adorn the gospel, not undermine the gospel. Okay? And one of the keys to this, to cultivating this in the church, is how we speak. So actions are really important. We'll talk about those in the series. But words are also really important as well. For good or for ill, our speech will be central to the kind of culture that we create and cultivate and protect in our church. So, for instance, Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such one as is good for edification, for building the church up, according to the need of the moment, that we may give grace to those who hear. If that takes root and is a distinguishing mark of a church family, like imagine the culture of that place. If on the other hand, a church is orthodox to the T, you know, crossing all the T's, dotting all the I's, and yet its people are prickly and nitpicky and judgy and negative and so on, I mean, that church culture is going to so undermine the reality and certainly the beauty of the gospel. So I've mentioned this book um, a few times already. I did it last week. Um, And now we have copies available in the lobby if you want to pick one of those up um, this morning. So Ray Ortland puts it this way in a brief point. Gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. The doctrine of grace creates a culture of grace. When the doctrine is clear and the culture is beautiful, that church will be powerful. But there are no shortcuts to getting there. Without the doctrine, the culture will be weak. Without the culture, the doctrine will seem pointless. Okay? So this is not like a once and done bit of work. This is something that we always have to be working on, right? Because the culture of the church is always under construction, and it's either going to always go in the unhealthier direction or the healthier direction. And we all have a part to play in this. So our speech really matters, as do our hearts, okay? Jesus taught us, right, out of the overflow of the mouth, the heart speaks. 
So it's not like we're just going to address speech. We're also going to address the heart. James does that. Um, in fact, the first passage we're going to look at, usually we look at one chunk of text, but this morning we're going to look at two passages in the same book. So James 4, 11 to 12, and then James 2, 12 to 13. Um, the first passage, James 4, 11 to 12, comes on the heels of James 4, 1 to 10, which addresses the heart, okay? Very much the heart of his readers because they were being spiritually unfaithful. To have idols in your life, to have something that takes God's first place is akin to, similar to, spiritual adultery. So he starts out in in James 4, 1 and says, you adulteresses, that'll get your attention. And then he calls them back to repent and back to faithfulness. And so now, verses 11 to 12, he's going to address their speech. So point number one, do not judge those God has justified. All right, look at chapter four, verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. We're just going to stop there for now. What does it mean to speak against a brother or sister? It's a fairly general term, actually. It certainly includes the ninth commandment, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Um, It would also include, maybe you can guess, slander, gossip, as well as being judgmental, uncharitably critical of a brother or sister. So do you notice how the verse continues? Um, So he says there, do not speak evil against one another brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges, so he links this speaking against with judging. So that's certainly included. Um, This same word is used in Numbers 21 when the Israelites came out of Egypt and they were complaining against, grumbling against both Moses and ultimately God. The people spoke against God and against Moses. It's the same. Do we have that verse, Numbers 21? Um, There it is. So the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food or no water and we loathe this worthless food. (laughs) In other words... Like, God, what in the world are you doing? Like, what were you thinking? They're judging God. They're judging Moses by speaking against them. They're casting reproach on God and on his servant. So, okay, this is serious stuff. This language of speaking against covers all kinds of unloving, kind of tear you down rather than build you up speech. Let's just focus, though, for the sake of clarity and practicality here as we seek to apply this, let's focus on gossip and slander, okay? And by the way, this, is me- this message is not a reaction message. Um, I don't have somebody in mind here except all of us because this is kind of a common issue for all of us, and I'm convicted and guilty, and, you know, this passage and James 2 has been messing with me this week and hopefully it'll just mess with all of us and we'll all be changed by the grace of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus more and more. So what is gossip? One definition, gossip is sharing information about a person behind their back when the hearer, 
person you say it to, is neither part of the perceived problem or part of the solution. So it's not their issue. So what is shared can be entirely or partly true information, but if you're sharing with the wrong person and or if your motivation is wrong, then it's gossip. So sometimes, sometimes the heart issue is fear of man. Anybody familiar with this? Like perhaps you should be speaking up directly to that person, humbly, lovingly, and directly addressing an issue with a brother or sister, but you're afraid to. You're afraid to speak to the person, so you speak about the person to someone who's not involved. And in some weird sort of way, we feel better about our feel better about it, to just, well, I've got to, I've got to, this needs to be addressed. So Kent Hughes gives a wise description in his book, Disciplines of a Godly Man. He says, gossip involves saying behind a person's back what you would never say to his or her face. And in some cases, we shouldn't say it to his face, but sometimes we should, and sometimes we don't because of fear. And you can see how this would sow seeds of all kinds of bitter fruit if we let this fester in a church, right? Discord and strife and suspicion and self-righteousness and distrust. It happens in families. It happens in circles of friends. It happens in a church, right? The Bible does not have good things to say about gossip. Proverbs 6, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devised wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Proverbs 26. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, it's another term for a gossip, quarreling ceases. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. Sometimes we want to hear this. They're like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body like the glaze covering an earthen vessel are fervent lips with an evil heart. And then James, early on in the book, in chapter 1, he says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So these are like serious issues, right? We want to guard against these Sins. We want to guard against doing this kind of damage in the community of faith. We need to bridle our tongues. So how do you know if what you want to say is gossip? Like, there's probably a number of, you know, bits of wisdom that we could gather here, but two things that might be easy to remember and apply. One, the face rule, and two, the golden rule, Okay. What do I mean? Face rule. If you wouldn't say it to their face, don't say it to somebody else's face. And then the golden rule, would I want someone to say this about me to someone else? Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Okay, I'm going to quote Raymond one more time. Ready? He's got some wisdom here. What is gossip? It is not necessarily false information. Slander is false. Gossip might include true information, and maybe that's why gossip doesn't always feel sinful. But gossip, gossip spreads what can include accurate information to diminish another person. 
That is not how people behave when they are living in the power of the grace of God. Gossip is our dark moral fervor eagerly seeking gratification. I would encourage you to really think about this next paragraph. I mean, why do we sometimes share this in hushed voices? (laughs) It's not like the open, loving candor, or the, the open candor of love, okay? So it's dark moral fervor, eagerly seeking gratification. Gossip makes us feel important and needed as we declare our judgments. It makes us feel included to know the inside scoop. It makes us feel powerful to cut someone else down to size, especially someone we are jealous of. It makes us feel righteous, even responsible, to pronounce someone else guilty. Gossip can feel good in multiple ways, but it is of the flesh, not of the spirit. What should we do when a conversation starts slipping into gossip? We should immediately challenge the sin. Hey, friends, sorry to interrupt, but this sounds to me like gossip. Let's put this conversation on hold until you can go get so-and-so. And then you can start over and say whatever you feel like you must say right to his face. Okay? Again, you can see why we sometimes back away from this in fear. And then he says, I love this, Amy Carmichael established this rule at her mission station. Amy Carmichael in India, you know, the girls that were trafficked, they were like um, prostitutes, cult prostitutes in um, these temples, and she rescued them, and she was like, um, ran an orphanage and was like mother to all these dear girls that she rescued. And the rule at her mission station was never about, always to. It's another maybe easily remembered, helpful point for how to apply this. Um, so this is the end of the quote. Sorry. Let all things be done for building up, First Corinthians 14, 26. If the person I feel like discussing were here with me right now, how would his presence or her presence change what I f- feel like saying? Okay? So again, we need to guard against gossip, all of us. I'm not thinking of anybody in particular. I'm just thinking of all of us because we can all be prone to this. Slander. Slander is what you do when you spread false information or you use parts of what you know in a malicious way to diminish or do a person harm in some way. And that you might hold out at arm's length until you realize that this also needs to be certainly applied to to us assigning motives to people. We particularly need to bite our tongues and check our mental judgments when it comes to motives and intentions of others. We can be so quick as if we know exactly why they did what they did. And so therefore, let me ask you a question. Do you always know the motives of your own heart? Are the motives of your heart always simple? Are they oftentimes mixed and a little complicated? And you really want other people to be kind of nuanced in understanding, you know, why you did what you did. Do we grant that same understanding to others? So if we don't always understand our own motives or intention, we would be wise not to presume to understand the heart and motives of others. So do you tend to come to quick judgments? Maybe you call it discernment. 
or the ability to read people, and maybe you do have some gifts along those lines? Or do you tend to give people the benefit of the doubt? Do you connect dots of guilt or habit or pattern a little too quickly? Again, if so, you may be prone, like susceptible to slander maybe more than you realize. So we must not speak against a brother or a sister. But also James wants us to see what's actually going on underneath when we do that, when we speak like that. James kind of pulls the curtain to show us the ugly reality behind this ugly speech. So point number two, um, look at how the text continues. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So in other words, you and I, we're not above the law, but we're acting like it when we speak against one another like this. So here's the point. Brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, we are called to obey the law, not judge the law. We are not the judge. The role's already been filled, okay? This is a call to stay in your lane. The role of judge is above all of our pay grade, okay? We are called to obey the law, the law of love. We're not above the law. So let me just give a quick qualifier here just in case, you know, these questions are kind of popping up in people's minds. All of this is not to say or mean that we can't exercise proper discernment and judgment, okay? We need to make judgments about all kinds of things. This certainly does not mean that we should ever be silent when some abusive or criminal behavior becomes known to us. You know, that's not something to just like in the name of these verses, be silent about. No, that would be a misunderstanding. This is also not to say that we can never engage in public response that is critical in nature to public statements, okay? Or that we can't disagree with each other and and kind of like wrestle with beliefs and and opinions and so forth. So the point is when engaged in debate, if we were to just tease this part of it out a little bit further, we should, as believers, lead the way in representing our opponents with such clarity and charity that after we've represented their position, they would say, yes, that's what I believe, rather than a caricature, and then you just knock that straw man down, right? Okay, that's the end of the little qualifier thing. Back to the main point. Why? Why do we do this? Why do we assume the judge's bench? thinking that we're above the law. Like, why do we do this? I mean, it certainly can come from like a prideful superiority complex, which is definitely anti-gospel impulse, right? Can also come from guilty insecurity. How does that work? We're not what we want to be. We know we're not what we ought to be. And you know what? We don't like it. And we don't like reminders of it. And if we can knock others down a few pegs, then perhaps we won't feel quite as bad as we do about our failures and mistakes. 
if anybody's connecting the dots, this is just a more sophisticated form of that elementary, middle school dynamic, you know, tear him or her down to help me feel a little bit better about myself. But again, this is anti-gospel impulse. And just think, if, if this is not checked, it does damage and creates, like it just undermines the gospel rather than adorns the gospel. So let's just step back and think about this for just a minute. Like, do you want hundreds of courtrooms spread out all over the city of Wilmington and probably beyond to which your reputation is ultimately subject? No, of course not. Then close up your shop. Do you see what I'm saying? Impeach yourself. I need to impeach myself. Boot ourselves from the bench. Resign our judicial posts. Close up our courtroom. Your mind, my mind, our conversations are not supposed to become so many court cases about the unrighteousness of our brothers and sisters. Instead of speaking against them, what should be filling our mouths and homes and conversations is encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Stir one another up to love and good deeds. That's the stuff that we ought to be spreading. So again, let's just, the mirror's being held up. What do we see? If you are given to negativity and complaint, you're going to really need to watch out here. So ask the Lord to help you realize it when you start to don the black robe of the judge, the black robe of justice in your mind or in your conversations. Like, Lord, help me to see it so that I can check it. I hate that I'm inclined to this. Lord, help me. Again, it's not just some of us, the people that are prone to negativity, although I'm sure we're all at times prone to that. Again, this is like all of us need to hear this. Don't waste any mental energy thinking about, oh, I really wish so-and-so was here, or I really hope so-and-so is listening to this. We all need to hear this. We all need to be honest with ourselves and with God. We need to own our unloving speech. So Kent Hughes writes this um, in his commentary on James. Personally... I can think of few commands that go against commonly accepted conventions more than this. Most people think it is okay to convey negative information if it is true. We understand that lying is immoral, but is passing along damaging truth immoral? Seems almost a moral responsibility. By such reasoning, criticism behind another's back is thought to be all right as long as it is true. Likewise, denigrating gossip, of course, it's never called gossip, is okay if the information is true. Thus, many believers use truth as a license to righteously diminish others' reputations. We really need to think about this. Like, Lord, help me to... The point right now is if your mind immediately goes to, well, yeah, but... Like, you're going down the wrong road. Instead, like, okay, Lord, I know there's definitely some you know, unique circumstances that I need to wrestle through, but by and large, I need to be honest and humble, and would you correct me and help me to grow? 
Like, that's what I need. That's what we all need. So one example of maybe how prevalent this tendency, this impulse can be, have you ever noticed that what really matters is what comes after the but? What do I mean by that? Well, she's really sweet, but dot, dot, dot. He's a good guy, but dot, dot, dot. I mean, I don't have anything against him, but... I mean, I don't know why we even bother. Actually, I do know why we bother. At least I know sometimes why I bother with the token positive thing at the beginning. Probably because we're trying to convince ourselves and others into thinking that we're not the critical spirits that we are. (laughs) What's the goal of this kind of speech? We cut people down. We set ourselves up as judge and chief evaluator. No wonder James says what he says. Josh read it. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, standing the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. This is serious stuff. You can't play with fire without getting burned or burning others. So this is serious. We need to take it seriously personally and corporately for our community culture. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religious is worthless. So Bethel, let's become gospel people. This whole series, right, it's actual and aspirational. We are a gospel people, right? But we want to become a gospel people through and through, saturated in the gospel, saturated in the mercy of God, soaked in the gospel, soaked in the mercy of God, steeped like a tea bag. Well, We'd be, we'd be more like the, the water, okay? So maybe the gospel's the teabag. Um, students of how God has dealt with us, praying that it sinks down to the core of who we are and changes even our unconscious instincts and reactions and impulses and the words that, like, oh, came out before I thought about it. Well, what if we got so soaked in the mercy and grace of God that what came out by impulse was... Like this kind of building up Ephesians 4.29 speech. How beautiful would that be? Like that's the kind of community, right? Anybody want to work to cultivate that? Yes. So we often use, we can use our instincts as almost like a excuse. Well, I speak sarcasm fluently. Ha ha. Okay. I mean, maybe there's a place for some sarcasm, but biting sarcasm, no. Ridicule digs and cutting remarks. Here's the thing. Do you want sin to shape you down at the core? Do you want the world and the devil to pull the strings at the core of your being? Or do you want core and comprehensive renewal by the power of the gospel, the mercy of God, all the way down at the core of who you are and working its way out in attitudes and facial expressions and body language and speech and action. Well, if so, like I do, I do, like, and I'm so far falling short. I think we all are, but let's look at our glorious, merciful, marvelous God and Savior. Like, again, just start, let's start in James. (laughs) So, okay, so Brett mentioned that this morning. He's like, if you're going to get people, he read it somewhere, heard it somewhere. He's like, if you're going to really get people excited about mission, you can't just keep harping on mission. 
You need to tell them about the gospel, the good news of the gospel, and then they're going to want to be on mission. So similarly here, we don't just keep harping on like, well, don't say this and do say this and don't say that. Don't like, like harp, 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 harp. No, what we really need to get excited about is the mercy of God. And the mercy of God so like changes us that it can't help but change the way that we speak. So let's focus on the mercy of God. That's not only the focus right now, but also that's the strategy for how to change how we speak. So listen, brothers and sisters, isn't it amazing that God is not censorious? That he's not nitpicky and hypercritical. And maybe you sometimes feel that he is. Okay, well, hold on. Let the Bible shape that. Don't project, you know, like a bad parent or whatever else influences. James 1.5, you can flip back there if you want. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. How many in the room have been an idiot before? My hand is up not just to lead you. I'm admitting. And we're stubborn. And we're slow to learn. And we're like, you know? And how does God treat us? He doesn't reproach us. He could, he could just be like, oh, so now you're asking for wisdom. Like, backhand. I mean, he could just so easily. We, we would deserve it. But he is wholehearted and willing to give mercy. Just wants us to come and ask. That's who he is. That's how merciful he is. God is, like Moses said, show me your glory. Okay? I'm going to cause all my goodness to pass before you. And I'm going to declare my name. So listen, this is who I am. This is at the core of who I am. Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant bounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That can really change everything as it gets down in here and we believe it. Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Quoting Exodus 34, he will not always chide. nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust even more so now that the Lord Jesus bears our flesh and blood. He knows our frame. And if you want to see merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, it's Jesus, full of grace and truth, and dying on our cross in our place for our sins. Mercy, 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 riches of mercy. Think about Jesus representing. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, 
Luke 5, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick have not come to call the righteous, wherever they are, that's an empty set, but sinners to repentance. Or think of the father in Luke 15 with the lost sons. Think of Matthew 18, the 10,000 talent forgiveness of debt. So we need to soak in, we need to focus on the mercy of God and then as a reflex response to mercy and grace and love and compassion, listen to what God calls us to do, not in our own strength, but only by the power of the gospel, only because it's not in order to be right with God, it's because we've been made right with God. If you've turned from your sins, you see your need of of a savior, you can't atone for your own sins, you can't save yourself, and God is rich in mercy, and Jesus came to save, you turn from your sins and you trust in Jesus, and then The Spirit dwells within you, and you have power. You're a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come, and you have power to then respond to God's grace. And you end up imitating him. Proverbs 7, 9, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. This isn't talking about enabling, you know, like, but this is like an everyday need because you and I, we sin against people, they sin against us. Like, if we can't cover and overlook sins, we are going to be like driven apart from each other. We're going to be bitter and resentful and all of this. So God has dealt with us this way. He's covered a multitude of sins. And now it is our glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 19, 11. Or Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Or Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Or Romans 12.10 says that we are to outdo one another in showing honor. I mean, good grief. Like, anyone convicted? Lord, have mercy. Wait. Look at that. If you are feeling right now, Lord, have mercy, the medicine is already working. Do you need mercy? Do you want judgment without mercy? Anybody want that? Nope, my hand's not up. Or do you want mercy to triumph over judgment? Well, it has in Christ. And we are now his people called to embody that mercy. Like, do we have any reason to choke out our neighbor, certainly not our brother or sister, for a hundred denarii debt if we've been forgiven 10,000 talents? So, point number three, how do you want to be judged? If we were all judged by the law, we're all toast. None of us has kept the law without fail. 
None of us has loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbor as much, with as much fervor and commitment as we show toward ourselves. So what we're saying is that we don't want the world to be a meritocracy. You don't want to get what you deserve, and neither do I. You want mercy. Yes. Okay, then. James 2. Second passage. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Have you been judged under the law of liberty? The law that Jesus came to fulfill includes the provision of his mercy. He died to purchase that mercy so that we no longer need to try to justify ourselves because you've been justified by the grace of God through faith in the Son of God as our merciful sin bearer. So if we've been shown mercy on the basis of the gospel of Jesus, then how can we not show mercy? And if we don't show this mercy, do we know this mercy? Do you want to be judged as you judge? So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Like if you want to turn away from your need for mercy and start judging the world, those around you, as if you have the right to determine who's in and who's out, Remember like the Pharisee in Luke 18? I thank you, God, that I'm not like this guy. Pathetic, you know. Then God will say, okay, so be it. I'll just judge you by your own standard. I mean, is that the law that you want to be judged under? Obviously not. But listen, we are so spring-loaded to self-righteousness, and it's so natural for us to try to taxonomize the world according to relative righteousness. Well, at least I'm not. What's wrong with you people? This is just the merciful splash of cold water reality that we need to wake up. Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And then James adds this glorious conclusion, mercy triumphs over judgment. This world is not a meritocracy. Hallelujah. If you're a sinner, we all are. If you've broken the law, we all have. Then you need mercy. I need mercy. We all do. The law clearly teaches us this. We look into the mirror of the word, the perfect law, the law of liberty, and we honestly face what we see, see our sin, but we see a God who is rich in mercy. And Jesus dying for our sins and dealing with us not as we deserve. Then that so humbles us and overwhelms us and thrills us and fills us that we then can show mercy. And we will guard our tongue from speaking against our brother or sister. We will show mercy because we've truly received mercy. So think what happens when a church is filled with people for whom the triumph of mercy is real. We need real spirituality, right? And it's sweet and it's powerful. When that happens, the glorious gospel doctrine of the mercy of God in Christ becomes beautifully embodied in the relationships. Like, isn't that the air you want to breathe here? Isn't that the air that you want others to breathe when they come in here? And here, it's a building. We're here. Maybe it's your community group, whatever, into your home. 
Well, then let's be doers of the word and not hearers only. Last point here. Remember that James says in chapter one, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, but he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is what we want, right? We want to be doers of the word, not merely self-deceived hearers. And the mirror of the word exposes us, but it also exposes God's mercy to us. So we dare not just go, forget what we look like, forget God's mercy, and you know, get back on our bench or get back on our perch, judging, disparagingly, critical with our remarks, speaking against one another. No, we need mercy. The mirror showed us that. God is mercifully forgiven. How can we claim the judge's bench, a right to that place? Mercied people become merciful people. And that has so much application to our speech. Again, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So listen, we're going to struggle with this. But let's struggle with this. Let's struggle for this. Let's struggle against speaking against each other. Let's catch ourselves and redirect ourselves. Let's stop and redirect others. And let's receive it when someone catches and stops and redirects us. That's not easy. It's a ding to our pride. So our main job description is not fault finder, fault spreader. You're going to be working 24-7 if you take that job on. There's no shortage of work. Spurgeon said the easiest work in the world is to find fault. Instead, we are mercy seekers and mercy spreaders. So as Francis Schaeffer said, we not only need sound doctrine and honest answers to honest questions, we also need true spirituality and beauty in our relationships. We need mercy, brothers and sisters, and we need to never forget our need of mercy. And when that need and that mercy received is real to us, when it's true and real in our experience, we will willingly give that kind of mercy to others. Our relationships will bear the beauty of our merciful Savior. And the church will display the beauty, the reality of the beauty of the gospel in both the matter of our words, the substance, and the manner of our words. May it be so. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing a closing song. God, you are more merciful than we can even imagine. And you have been so merciful with us. And we need your mercy again. So fill us with your mercy so that we can pour it out. Where we need to repent, where we need to really seek for you to shine the spotlight on our hearts and our patterns of speech. 
Help us to just deal with reality and own it and repent. And if if there's anybody we need to go talk to, help us to do that as well. And please, Lord, give us grace to change and to grow and to keep fighting the good fight of the faith and more and more being conduits of your beautiful, wonderful mercy toward us in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.